A princess goes to bathe in the river and has her heart won by the cries of an abandoned baby. A bush on fire but doesn't burn up and from it speaks a voice that will change history. A shepherd walks out of the wilderness to do battle with the most powerful man on the earth. The people of Egypt turn back their sheets to find frogs in their beds. The lone cry of a bereaved mother is joined by another, and then another, and then another, until a loud wailing echoes across the entire land. An entire nation, hundreds of thousands of people, walk through a sea on dry land with giant walls of water on either side. God himself is put on trial. And when the verdict is announced, God receives the judgment of the court. Amid thunder, lightning, thick cloud, and earthquake, the voice of God booms across the land. In the wilderness, a man argues with God about the future of a people, and God relents. The glory of God fills a tent to such an extent that everyone has to evacuate. There is no shortage of drama in the book of Exodus. It is a story that has repeatedly captured public imagination and has been a favorite of Hollywood. But is that all it is? Is that it? Just a compelling story? Long before our story? No, it's not. For the next several months, we will see that Exodus is not a story before our story. Exodus is our story. It has always been our story. You see, if you stopped an Israelite in the days of the Exodus and you asked them, who are you and what's going on here? Who are you and what's going on here? They would say, I was a slave under the sentence of death. But I took shelter under the blood of the Lamb and escaped that bondage. And now God lives in our midst and we are following Him to the promised land. In other words, that Israelite would say exactly what a Christian would say today. Exactly the same thing. So yes, Exodus is a riveting story. It is. The next few months are going to be a lot of fun. It's a riveting story. And yes, it is an ancient story, a very old story. But it's also our story. It's our story. So let's dive in, shall we? Today we begin a new sermon series in the book of Exodus. And so we begin with verse 1, we're going to look at verses 1 through 10, if you have your Bible with you. If you don't have your Bible with you, the verses will be on the screen behind me. Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Benjamin. 
Dan and Nephtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. This is God's word. So when the book of Exodus opens, it picks up right where Genesis left off, okay? Right where Genesis left off. It describes what happened to the people of Israel, who are the descendants of Jacob. Now, once they got down uh, to Egypt, uh, now Joseph was already there, as our text just says. He was already down in Egypt. Uh, And in Egypt, the people of Israel thrived. So it just started as 70 folks, you know, a, a rather medium-sized-ish family, basically. Uh, but once they got down to Egypt, uh, it just exploded. <laughs> so 70 became thousands uh, relatively quickly. And so they grew and they thrived in very large numbers. But as the continuation of Genesis, Exodus assumes the readers know a couple things. First, it's pretty obvious. Exodus assumes that you already know the story of Genesis. So it just picks right up from there. And so we'll be referencing Genesis a lot in this sermon series because you kind of have to know Genesis to really get the gist of what's going on in Exodus. So we'll be referencing Genesis a lot. That's the first assumption. But the second thing Exodus just assumes is that the reader knows where the story's going. So not only does Exodus assume you know what's happened before, Exodus knows, assumes that you know what happens in the Exodus which is kind of weird, right? I mean, it assumes the audience, or at least the first audience, knows what happens next. And it kind of reads that way, which is kind of odd, don't you think? Why would the first audience know where the story is going? Well, because they experienced it firsthand. The first audience was there. (laughs) They were there. Now, have you ever thought about that? The fact that the first people to read the book of Exodus were the people who'd lived it. They lived it. If you were one of them, you might have heard it with fresh scars from Egyptian whips on your back. You and your family might read this story with scars on your backs, each of you. I mean, you had endured generations of ruthless oppression at the hands of the Egyptians. You grew up delivering the straw to the mud pits. You would later work in as an adult, making bricks for the pharaohs. But then your own eyes had seen the plagues rain down on Egypt one by one. And your own feet had walked along the bottom of the Red Sea with walls of water on either side of you. And so this begs the question, If you had lived it, why do you need to read about it? Why did you need the story told to you again? You were there. You went through it. You lived it. Why did you need to hear it? 
Well, you needed to hear it because there is a big difference between experience and revelation. A big difference. There's a big difference between you interpreting something that happened to you and then God telling you the actual meaning of it. This happens to us all the time. We go through our own wildernesses in life and we try to interpret what is happening. And most of the time, we're pretty bad at it. We're pretty bad at interpreting what God is up to. And so are the Israelites. We see them over and over and over in the book of Exodus complaining, mumbling, grumbling about Moses and about God himself. Because they don't understand really what's going on. And so God gives them a precious gift in the form of the book of Exodus. So when you read the book of Exodus and when the first audience read the book of Exodus, they were not reading it from their perspective, they get to read the story that they endured through God's perspective, through the perspective of the one who rescued them, which is pretty neat. You and I don't get that a whole lot, do we? <laughs> we don't get a book showing us exactly what was going on during our experiences, but the Israelites did. And what a gift this was to them. And so God wanted them to know not only what was going on in all of these circumstances, but the most important thing God wanted them to see was who he is. Who he is. He wanted to reveal himself to his people. And so the reason we're going to work our way through this very ancient book is because you and I have the same need to know this God as the original audience did. We have the same questions in the wilderness of our lives the same doubts, the same sins. And so we need to know, who is this God and can we trust Him? Can we trust Him in our sins, in our trials and tribulations, in our sorrow, in our weakness? Can we trust Him? Now, there are a lot of themes in Exodus but just one overarching concept above them all that kind of guides the entire story. And so today is more of just an introductory sermon to show you this overarching concept in Exodus. Next week, we'll start really hammering out verse by verse. But today is going to be an introduction to the overarching concept that will drive the whole story. And that overarching concept is this. The Exodus introduced the people of God to the pattern of redemption. The pattern of redemption. That is the overarching theme of the book. Now, patterns are super helpful for us. With patterns, we can make clothes, we can solve puzzles and do all kinds of cool things. And so if we see a pattern, and then when the next piece comes in, we can recognize it quickly and say, hey, now wait a minute, this doesn't fit the pattern. Or wait a minute, this does fit. And this is really crucial for us in the pattern of redemption. Because there's a lot of false gospels going around. There's a lot of false redemption stories going, going around. And so what we need to do is understand God's true pattern of redemption. How he actually redeems his people. So that we will be able to hear the true gospel when it comes and receive it. And reject the false gospel of redemption when it comes. And so we'll see this pattern throughout Exodus. Today we will look at two aspects of the pattern of redemption uh, for, just for a start, and we'll pick up more aspects of redemption, of course, as we go along. 
Uh, but today we're just going to look at two aspects of redemption. Number one in your outline is redemption is always extra nos. Redemption is always extra nos. Now, extra nos is a Latin phrase that comes to us from the great reformers. And it means outside ourselves. Outside ourselves. Extra nos. Outside of us. So what does this mean? It means redemption is always from the outside. Redemption comes from outside in. Would you like to know how much the Israelites contributed to their own salvation? Zip. <laughs> they did nothing and they couldn't do anything to it. They could not get themselves out of slavery to the most powerful nation on the earth. They were completely powerless and completely helpless. Right? Therefore, if they are going to be rescued, if they are going to be redeemed, God has to do all the work. He has to do it all. And so we will see in the book of Exodus that God alone brings Israel out of Egypt and ultimately into the promised land. God alone brings Israel out of ignorance and into the light of revelation when God reveals himself to them as both creator and redeemer. God alone brings Israel out from slavery to Pharaoh and into his service. God alone makes Israel his, quote, treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's from Exodus 19. And so, because this is the pattern of redemption, it is always extranos. This same pattern of redemption is followed in the greater redemption that you and I are a part of. The greater redemption that was accomplished by Jesus through his death and resurrection. On Wednesday nights, we've been going through a pretty cool series with the teenagers. And I love Q&A with the teenagers. I like back and forth with them. And uh, I had a lot of questions as a teenager, and I always want to make sure that they are allowed to ask questions. And so um, I always ask them these questions, and they always look to the board over here. And they're like, well, you know, and one of them said, I can't remember who it was, <laughs> but one of them said uh, a couple weeks ago, they said, you know, you kind of put a cheat sheet on the wall over here. <laughs> I was like, okay, uh, you're right. I did put a cheat sheet on the wall. Uh, and I did that for, for a very good reason. So, you know, how sometimes when you were in school, you know, the teacher would kind of go ahead and give you the notes and the questions and the answers to the test beforehand. Yeah, right. So you could have it. Well, I kind of did the same thing with the wall over here. Um, and so if you look at the wall, Paul summarizes the gospel for us in 1 Corinthians 15. What role did you play in the gospel of redemption? If you look at the board. The same as the Israelites. <laughs> now, one theologian that I really like, he says, and when people ask him, you, you tell me I didn't play any part in my salvation. I brought nothing to the table. And he says, oh, no, 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 I'm not saying that. You brought a lot to the table. You brought a lot. You brought your sin and great need. And then Jesus brought the rescue. Oh, you brought a lot to the table. You brought your sin that Jesus died for. That's what you brought to the table. And that's what the Israelites brought to the table. They brought their mumbling and grumbling and complaining. And, of course, they brought their chains. And that's it. That's all that they provided. And God did absolutely 
everything to rescue them. He did it all. He did it with them. And he did it with you. And he did it with me. You see, Christ alone brought us out of the kingdom of the world and into the kingdom of God. Christ alone brought us out of ignorance and made himself known to us as our creator and redeemer. Christ alone broke our shackles of sin and death. Christ alone brought us out from our futile service to sin and Satan and into the service of our living God. For us, the exodus accomplished by Jesus begins with freedom. Total freedom from guilt and shame and sin. But you know, the gospel does not end there. It keeps going. It didn't end with your baptism. It just began with it. Redemption is not a one-time thing for God. That's not how he works. He doesn't accomplish redemption for you and then move on to other things. No, redemption is the continual work of God. He's still saving you. And he's still saving me every day. Redemption is what God does. It's what he does. It's the thing he loves to do most. <laughs> he loves to redeem his people. Redemption, once you come out of the baptismal water, redemption just keeps going. <laughs> it keeps going out of death and into life. Abundant life in Christ. That's the entire Christian experience. Moving out further and further into a life of freedom, joy, and rest. In the book of Exodus, we see God urging his people, much like Aslan in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, when Aslan says to the children, further up and further in, you are not yet as happy as I mean you to be. This is the Christian life. God is urging us, you are not yet as happy as I mean you to be. You're not yet as full of joy and rest as I mean you to be. Now, it is true that the fullness of our joy uh, must wait until we reach the true promised land, which is the new heavens and the new earth that will come when Christ returns. But the extra nose pattern of redemption means that because Jesus has already completed the work, if you see our cheat sheet on the wall here, this is done. It was done 2,000 years before you were even born. Okay? Which means what? It means that because the work of redemption is finished, then we may right now enter into the life Christ has won for us through his death and resurrection. We're not working our way to heaven, folks. Y'all get that? Heaven's been purchased for us. Long, long before we were born. We're not waiting for heaven. Heaven is ours now. Right now, it's ours. Our names are already written in the Lamb's book of life. Right? We are already seated in heavenly places with Jesus. We're already there. We're not working our way up some ladder to heaven. Oh no. Jesus worked his way down the ladder to come to us. And he brought heaven with him. And so what does that mean? What does that mean? 
It means that nothing can hold you back from freedom in Christ. Nothing. There's nothing. The work's been done. You're not working for it. He works for it and just hands it to you. There's nothing stopping you from joy and freedom and rest in Christ. Nothing. Your sin can't hold you back. Your doubts can't hold you back. Your failures can't hold you back. Hell can't hold you back. And even death can't hold you back. Because of the completed work of Christ, we can say with the poet George Herbert, death used to be my executioner, but the gospel has made him for me just a gardener. Death is just a gardener for us. And so that's point number one. Redemption is always extranos. It always comes to us from the outside. Number two, in your outline, redemption always involves death. Always. Now, there is a tremendous amount of death in Exodus. It's kind of shocking, really, how much death is in the book. And the threat of death, we just read about it, the threat of death looms over the very opening scene here. As Israel's very existence is threatened by the most powerful man on the earth. Now, in the story of redemption back in Genesis, the promises of God rested solely on the survival of Abraham and his family. And so time and time again in Genesis, we see God protecting the life of Abraham and his descendants. Okay? The promise is tied to Abraham and his descendants, the people of Israel. But when redemption finally did come to Israel, it came through death. The ten plagues of the Exodus culminated in the death of the firstborn of Egypt. The firstborn, from the firstborn son of the Pharaoh to the firstborn son of the cattle. And except for the provision of God, the same death angel who took the life of the firstborn of Egypt would have taken the life of the firstborn of Israel too. But God provided a way for his people to be saved. And it was through the death of a lamb. With the blood of the lamb spread across their doorway, death would pass over their house. The lamb would die in the place of God's people. And through the death of the sacrifice, God redeemed his people and brought them out of slavery and into freedom. But it was only through the death of the lamb. You see, all, Yahweh always redeems his people. But it always comes at a price. Without blood, there is no covering for sin. Without death, there is no redemption. Now, do you see the pattern? Do you see the pattern? Just as he did in Exodus, Yahweh worked your redemption in exactly the same way. Jesus is your sacrificial lamb. If you read the book of Revelation, you will see that even in heaven, Jesus stands as the bloodied, sacrificed lamb who yet lives. And through our faith in him, his blood 
covers us and removes all of our chains from guilt and sin and rebellion against our Creator. And He redeems us through His blood out of death and into His life. See, redemption always comes at a cost. Your redemption came at a very high cost, but you didn't have to pay it. It was a cost that Yahweh Himself paid by sending His one and only Son to pay it. In the shocking reality of the cross, God gave you His only Son, His precious Lamb, to rescue you and to take the punishment you deserved for your sin and I deserved for mine. The Son of God died so that we may live and live forever. And all Israel had to do in the Exodus was trust God and cover their house in the blood of the Lamb. And they were saved. And you and I are saved in exactly the same way. We're not saved through good behavior. We're not saved through moral achievements. We're not saved through coming to church, paying our tithe, and being nice to our neighbors. We are only saved by putting the blood of the Lamb over our lives. Living under that blood in joy and peace and rest. Knowing that His blood has redeemed us. And His blood alone has done the work. We contribute nothing. <laughs> Jesus contributes his precious blood. And that is all that's needed. It's all that is required to save you, a sinner, and me, a sinner, forever. And so we place our faith in Jesus, not in ourselves, not in our church attendance, not in our good behavior, not in our works. We place our faith in Jesus' work on our behalf. Now, today some of you are here and you have some urgent questions about who God really is, about whether or not you can trust Him. You may not be a wandering Israelite in the wilderness beyond the Red Sea, but the same questions about God come up in the wilderness of your life. As fears of sin, old age, or sickness loom over you. Will God be the same Redeemer for me? When I lie on my deathbed? When I think about my sin, fear arises in me. I'm afraid of what God thinks about me. Is God bigger than my sins? Is He bigger than my fears? When I walk in the wilderness of doubts, in the wilderness of parenting, of broken relationships, of trying to live as a Christian in a lost world, can I trust Him to take care of me? Well, my friends, the promise of God, the promise of the book of Exodus, the promise with roots going back even before the book of Exodus, and the promise of God in Jesus Christ is yes. 
Yes, He will. You can trust Him. Because He is Yahweh. And He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As He was with them, so He will be with you. He will. He is your Creator, and He is your Redeemer. He is both. And so when we experience trials, or doubts, or sin in our lives that bring us down... All we have to do is come back. Come back to the faithfulness of God in Christ. We come back to the foot of the cross. And though our fathers and we ourselves wandered from God into sin and darkness and death, and though we groan under the heavy hand of our hateful master called sin, Yahweh came to us. Yahweh came in a lowly manger in Bethlehem. He came on a rescue mission, a redemption mission, because that's who Yahweh is. He is our redemption. And he will not sit idly by while we lavish under the chains of shame and guilt over our sin. He won't. He won't. No, Yahweh heard our cries of affliction. And with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, he brought us out of darkness and into the light through the death and resurrection of his precious Lamb.